We open God's word today to the book of Ephesians, beginning in the fourth chapter in the 25th verse. If you'd be so kind as to follow along in your copy of God's word or on the screen behind me. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your house in freedom, in health, to open your holy word, Father. And we pray that you would do something in this moment that I cannot, that we cannot, but that your spirit might move through us. Draw attention to those areas in our life that need adjustment. Help us to worship you. And we pray that in this hour, your heart will be blessed by what you experience in ours. We desire much for this hour to be a blessing to the heart of the king, but also to feel your presence. We confess our deep need for you, Lord. We can do nothing without you. But we desire so much for you. So be our Lord and help us in this hour to be fully your children. And we will praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed that lately there seems to be so much anger in the community of faith? That's why I was drawn to this passage this morning. It, it deals with how we are to relate to one another when times get hard, when we feel like we have been pushed. It deals with how you and I in the community of faith are to deal with each other. And then as we reach out into the community, to the, the community of non-believers, how are we to interrelate with them? I think we feel angry sometimes as a community of faith because we've been pushed We've been marginalized. We, we feel like it, it's almost time to push back. For instance, you can see the anger on Facebook. I know most of you are on Facebook. I mean, is there anyone here that's not on Facebook? Just raise your hand. How do you live? How do you survive if you don't have Facebook? It's not real unless you post it on Facebook. 
Facebook is a website where you can post pictures of your grandchildren, you know. Sometimes I put my pottery on there, and, and uh, you can put your pictures of your vacation, so I'll feel bad about myself, and, and that's your goal. That's what it is, I know. We can also talk about our political beliefs, our religious views, and, and, and some of the comments are funny, and some of them are sketchy, and a few are downright disturbing. Here's one that I came across uh, a little while back, and you see a lot of this or something like it. It says this, reshare if you love God. In 120 seconds, he will do you a favor. If you've ever posted anything that's kind of like that, would I just ask you, as my brothers, my sisters, my friends, please stop. If our theology is going to make a difference in the world, it's going to have to be more biblically profound than this. Here's another one that caught my eye. Dear Jesus, I've failed you a thousand times, yet you love me still. What do you think? Good theology? There's certainly some truth in it, but I almost felt like the next sentence was going to be, and I'm going to fail you a thousand more times, and you still have to love me anyway. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Here's another one. Don't judge someone just because they sin differently than you. Well, that kind of made sense as well. Jesus said it this way. He said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And yet, as I read it, I don't think that that means that we're to give each other permission to sin. And people of faith seem angry. You see it on Facebook. You see it on the internet. That We feel like we've been pushed. The Ten Commandments have been pushed out of the courthouses. And prayer has been pushed out of school. And, and sometimes we are made to feel foolish and unsophisticated by evolutionists and scientists. And we feel marginalized. And the church seems to have been the center of the community, the center of the nation before, and now not so much. And, and, I, and I feel like we're afraid sometimes, you know, because we see the great crises in our world and, and, and in our nation, and sometimes we feel, and I know I've thought it, that is this a sign, is this a judgment against a nation who has turned their back on God? And so perhaps we feel a little trapped between be angry on one hand and do not sin on the other. We feel a little caught between Revelations 2.20 that says that we're not to tolerate evil, and yet the command of Jesus also says that we love our neighbor as ourselves, that we're to turn the other cheek. As I read the theology of Facebook, it seems to me that we are working ourselves up to push back. Is that what we're supposed to do? How are we to respond? How are we to respond against anything that is contrary to the will of God? How do we respond when we feel pushed, when we feel angry, when we feel afraid? Could, could we begin by agreeing that to change the direction of our nation, it's going to take a lot more than a quick comment to our friends on Facebook, who are probably our friends because we think very much alike already. It might make us feel like we're doing something, but are we really? 
Or are we just deluding ourselves? Yeah, if you've seen on Facebook this week, maybe the last couple weeks, you know, you've seen a lot of people posting um, the, the property of uh, my pictures on Facebook are mine and you can't use them for anything. Have you seen that? And a lot of people have cut and paste. I had a friend who, who, who uh, cut and paste and then he said, oh, go ahead, take what you want. There ain't nothing important on there. Nobody's listening to what I'm saying anyway. That's kind of the way I feel. There's nothing on there. And, and, and if we really feel like we're changing something, I'm just not so sure. Could we agree this morning that this is far more important than winning an argument and calling ourselves victorious? Could we all agree that the life of faith causes us not to burn bridges, but to build bridges and build relationships so that some might be saved? What are we supposed to do when we're pushed? Listen, I find it terribly important that the first thing that the Apostle Paul, as he tries to address this question with the Ephesians, the first thing he says is that each one of us is to begin not with what the other person is doing, but we are to begin by our own personal behavior. Verse 28 says this, he who steals must steal no longer. And I guess that's kind of a, a no-brainer. No one would argument with, argue with that. But then he adds, listen, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. When pushed, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you along with malice. Let me just ask you honestly, how is the community of faith doing with that in this political season that seems to go on forever? What Paul says in short is if we are going to change the world, the first change must be within us. So how are we to respond? First, we respond by being the people of faith that we should be. Jesus said it this way in an old parable that deserves a new look. Matthew 7, 3, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Did you know that 18 times in the, in the Gospels, Jesus warns the community of faith not to be hypocrites? 18 times. Jesus is rarely upset with those outside. In fact, I can't think of a time where Jesus condemns those outside the community of faith but he talks to those inside the community of faith. We get so upset about what's going on out there, the non-believers. Listen, newsflash, those who are non-believers are going to live for themselves. They're going to do what they believe, what feels right to them, and they're going to be very angry if you say anything otherwise. I don't expect anything of a non-believer, but the scripture says to us that Jesus Christ holds us to an incredibly high standard, to include the way that we communicate. Why? Because if we burn bridges at that critical point in someone's life where they're open and ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, will they come back to us if we have been ugly, if we have been argumentative, if we have done character assassination? And the answer is no. It is far more important that we bridle our own tongues for that critical point where we might say something truly powerful, meaningful. 
You and I are held to an incredibly high standard. The Holy Spirit, the inspired word of God says to all believers, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. But there seems to be a lot of clamor in the world today. And some might object, you know, well, you know, you got to start sputtering. I have freedom of speech. I have my rights. I can say whatever I want to say. Listen, I'm going to say something to you that you may find offensive, but I believe it's biblical. Christians do not have freedom of speech. We are not allowed to say any old thing that we want. We gave up some of our rights, in fact, all of our rights, the moment that we are baptized. When I was baptized, I stood in front of the, the congregation and I said it, by being there that I'm no longer Democrat, I'm no longer Republican, I'm a Christ follower. And my guide is the scriptures, and the scriptures say this, James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Likewise, James 3.11, does a fountain send out from the same open, opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. In other words, listen, we can't be people of faith that come in here on Sunday morning and raise holy hands and worship our God. And, but Sunday afternoon, we're kind of saying some snarky or vile thing on, on the internet. That that doesn't add up. You can't can't do both. James would call that double-minded. He would call that a worthless faith. If you want freedom of speech, this is what the Apostle Paul says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you know how you should respond to each person. Listen, if you want freedom of speech, then go share the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not not only encouraged to do that, we are commanded to do that, are we not? Speak with grace so that some might be saved from the the torment of hell and, and inherit the kingdom of God. So first, what are we to do when we're pushed? Be the people of spiritual integrity that God has called us to be. And secondly, we're called to pray. Matthew 5.43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wonder if we are posting more or are we praying more? I had a, a friend in my last church, we good friends, and in many things we really agreed, but when President Obama was elected eight years ago, I started to get these emails. And they started to be, you know, they were kind of, you know, political, political, and then they started to get kind of personal, and then it started to get kind of racial. And I finally wrote him back an email, and I said, listen, you go ahead and keep sending me any kind of email that you want, but there's a tax on it. There's an email tax on it. I said, for every email that you send me about President Obama, I want you to write out a prayer for him and email that to me as well. 
email because that's what the scriptures say in the book of Romans, that we are to pray for those who are in leadership over us. It is a non-negotiable. It is a command that we are to pray for those. And you know what? We don't like higher taxes, and I never got another email from him again. Are we praying as much as we're posting? Because you know, as well as I do, strange things happen when you pray. When you pray, you begin to see your enemies no longer as enemies, but simply as lost and those needing Jesus Christ. And it's pretty easy to say arrogant or hurtful things on the internet or on Facebook. It's hard to be arrogant when you are humbled before a holy God. And when we pray, we might just see others through the eyes of the Lord. We might have compassion. Of course, posting on Facebook is easier. It just doesn't mean anything. Pray. Because he is the only source of power and victory that we have. When we are pushed, we're called to be people of spiritual integrity. When we are pushed, we're called to pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And finally, when we are pushed, we are called to imitate our Savior. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice, a fragrant aroma to God. Meekness isn't weakness, and humility is nothing less than power under control. When we are pushed, we are to show the rare and difficult strength not to push back, but rather with the power and convictions, turn the other cheek as Jesus did. How often, by the way, was Jesus angry? As you look into the scriptures, how often was he really angry? You know, as I've gone through the scriptures, I can really only count one time that he was just full throttle furious, angry, and that was with outsiders or insiders. It was with the insiders, wasn't it? One time in three years, and I would just say that's a pretty good rule of thumb for Christians. One time in three years. Maybe twice, depending on how you read the scriptures. Not a bad rule of thumb. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not lose the opportunity to win a brother or a sister to lead someone to salvation. It seems to me that there's such a theological childishness on Facebook. It reminds me of some of the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. I tried to put those in words in a contemporary context this week, and it kind of sounds something like this. When I was a child, I pushed back as a child. I gave as good as I got. I returned hurt for hurt. I took advantage of every weakness because winning was everything. But when I became a man or a woman, I chose to put away childish things because I discovered that no one really wins such a fight. Everyone is bruised and bloodied and that momentary satisfaction just isn't worth the eternity of loss. And so now all I will fight for is to restore. 
He is not my adversary, but my future partner. She is not my enemy, but my future sister in the faith. And now I know the only thing worth winning is healing in Christ. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. Speaking of children, how many of you know who C.S. Lewis is? Raise your hand if you do. Most of us were uh, uh, introduced to him by uh, the movie lately, uh, Narnia. He, 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 of course, he wrote those books. But he also wrote uh, a book called The Screwtape Letters. Has anyone ever heard of that? It's a wonderful book. It was written by C.S. Lewis and published in February of 1942. And, and the story takes the form of a series of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood, who was a junior tempter. And the uncle's mentorship pertains to the nephew's responsibility to securing the damnation of a British man known only as the patient. Here is an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book. My dear Wormwood, be sure that the patient remains completely fixated on politics. Arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain toward the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure that the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing there is a problem within himself. Keep up the good work, Uncle Screwtape, written in 1942. Is that amazing? Could that not speak directly toward 2016? Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that there are great problems in our nation that must be addressed, but this is not the worst time in the history of the world. That our nation is flawed but not broken. That it's still full of generous and kind people, for instance. It just took, you know, one phone call and one post on Facebook, by the way. And you poured out an incredible amount of generosity to those in Lovington. You brought cases of heavy water. You, you brought uh, uh, food and clothing. You donated $3,072 last Sunday morning for people that you will never meet, but simply you wanted to reach out to them because they, you knew they were hurting. It reminds me that God is still sovereign. God is still absolutely in control, and the tactics of the devil have not changed, and we should not make his job easy. Rather, you and I are people that must be spiritually consistent, have great spiritual integrity, that we are called to pray for our leaders, our nation, and even our enemies. And then listen carefully to the words of Jesus and follow in his steps for his glory. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious Father, we thank you we thank you for every gift that you have given us 
And we acknowledge that everything and anything that is in our life that is good is a gift from you. And we thank you for the blessings of freedom and health and abundance more than perhaps any other nation in the history of history. You have blessed us incredibly. Above all, we thank you for your son, Jesus. By his sacrifice, we are saved. By his sacrifice, we have wholeness now and the promise of eternity. By his sacrifice, we have peace. So, Lord God, by the power of your Spirit, help us to be people of peace. Help us to be bridge builders. Help us to be people of consistency. Help us to lead the lost to you. We love you. We thank you. And we acknowledge before all that we can do nothing without you. But, oh, Lord, by your power and strength, help us to do much for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.